welcome to my hearth. Last time we were looking at the story of Adam and Eve and including it in that category of being a forerunner of the birth of Christ in the New Testament. And we were looking at it from the point of view of the mystery plays uh, in the time of the medieval guilds. And I did say that we would look at two others of those stories, the story of Noah and the story of Abraham and Isaac. Remember I said that these plays that were being performed by the guilds were going to be really relevant to the people watching, the ordinary medieval folk. And of course, someone building a ship in a play is a brilliant thing for people to relate to. Many people in the audience would be artisans of some kind, building things, creating things, doing things. And to have a central character who is in essence, a shipbuilder, a carpenter, would be very relevant. Now, I know what you're going to be thinking. You're thinking, OK, Noah's going to be a forerunner of Christ because Jesus worked as a carpenter in his earthly father Joseph's carpentry shop. And Noah, being a carpenter, is going to be a forerunner of Christ. That is true, but there's a lot more to it than that, and it's much deeper. Noah is in direct communication with God in this particular part of the Bible. He is told to build something incredibly unusual and difficult, and he is told it by God directly. Not only that, he is being told to do something which on first viewing is absolute madness. He is building a ship in the desert in preparation for a flood. The ship is incredibly large and could not be hidden from anybody. Everyone would see what he was doing. It was a kind of divine madness. God is asking him to do something which the rest of humanity is going to go, what, what are you doing? More importantly, one of the people who is going to be saying, Noah, what are you doing, is his wife. The play has a lot of humour in it, because of the relationship between Noah and his wife and the fact that she keeps saying, I think you're mad. And there is incredible peer pressure on Noah's wife from all of her friends, who in the play are known as her gossips, who are saying, we're a bit worried about you and your husband. He is not just married, he also has a family, and he is having to deal with his children looking at him askance. Remember that in the many years it takes him to build such a huge ship, it is not raining. That is part of his obedience to God. 
Remember the story you looked at last time, the story of Adam and Eve? There's an example of people who are not being obedient to God. Noah is the opposite. He is being obedient to God against all the odds. He's building a ship in a desert in preparation for a flood, and it is not raining. He then fills the ship with all of these creatures, many of them unpleasant to humans, and ask his family to go in the ship with him. And of course, part of the delight of the story is his wife refusing to go in. For some reason, she doesn't want to be in a vessel that has in it crocodiles, lions, tigers and snakes. Again, a storytelling point to bear in mind, which is a slight sidetrack. In the original, the part of Mrs Noah, a difficult northern woman, would have been played by a man, and that would have created some humour of itself, and is part of the origin of the modern pantomime dame. So the core of the story is about Noah's obedience to God, even in the face and objection of his wife, whom he does love, not obeying God. It's part of the madness of obeying God. Despite all the objections, he is faithful. And of course, when everything is ready, God opens the heavens and it does start to rain. It rains as it has never rained before. It is a natural disaster. It is an act of God. The story is ever more complex. When the rains are coming, Mrs Noah wants her gossips, her female friends, to be allowed to be in the boat with them. And Noah has to say no. That's another deep level of meaning of storytelling. You can't save everybody. After the rains have ceased and the ark is becalmed, on the sea and they're waiting for the waters to drop then we get the iconography of birds there is a raven and ravens are of themselves because of how they look and who they are often seen as harbingers of death or of the things of night there is also a dove that is a symbol of peace and the opposites of that raven and the dove are very strong images in storytelling. You try to have iconography, which is really going to resonate with your listener or your viewer, and the contrast between the raven, which is a bit of a brute of a bird, and the beautiful dove, I think speaks for itself. The dove is carrying an olive branch, which first of all shows that the waters have subsided, and also the olive branch is always seen as a symbol of peace and reconciliation, and so therefore, in terms of iconography, is telling Noah 
that he is now at peace with God. We talk all the way through storytelling about someone bringing an olive branch to a situation. When they, in inverted commas, land on Mount Ararat and the story is coming to an end, then God does something else. He places a rainbow in the sky as a covenant with his people, saying that he will never destroy the world again with a flood. And again, this is a forerunner of Christ, because with Christ, he says he will not destroy the earth again through their sin. The existence of Christ is another covenant with God. He is a metaphorical rainbow. Now, the second of these stories I want to deal with is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's son, Isaac, is the product of a miracle in itself. Both Abraham and his wife were very old when Isaac was born. It was a miracle. God had told them that they were going to have a child, but waited until they were so old that it must have been as a result of God's intervention. And of course, Isaac is extremely precious to both of them. What happens when Isaac is growing up is another example of God asking someone to do something which they would normally refuse to do. In the Old Testament in particular, it wasn't unusual for people to make sacrifice to God in terms of animal sacrifice. The temple allowed that to happen. Abraham is told by God to go and make sacrifice to him and to go up a mountain and take Isaac with him to help him with the sacrifice. And of course, Abraham agrees. Abraham is faithful and always does what God asks him to do. However, when they have climbed the mountain and are about to make sacrifice, God intervenes and turns the tables. He asks Abraham not to sacrifice an animal, but to sacrifice Isaac, his son. Abraham's faithfulness is being tested because Isaac, obviously, is the most precious thing he has. Now, what's very interesting from a storytelling point of view is that Abraham and Isaac have to have a conversation about what is going on. And Abraham has to tell Isaac that God has asked him to sacrifice his own son. And Isaac is amazing in what he says, which is basically, if God has asked you to do it, Father, then you have to do it but I ask you, please kill me quickly. Because I'm frightened of the process of death. 
the process of the sacrifice goes right through almost to the moment of death. And then God sends an angel which stops it happening. And the angel tells Abraham that there is a ram that has been caught in a thicket nearby and God wants that as a sacrifice. The point is, of course, that Abraham has been tested right up to the point where there might have been no turning back. Now, in the play version, we come to the point which makes it even clearer about this being a forerunner of the story of Christ, because God appears and talks to Abraham. And God says to him, In this particular case, I have intervened, and I have saved your son. But when it comes to the point of it, I will not save my own son, which, of course, is a forerunner of Christ. And that would have been very provocative and telling to the audience watching when they realise that God could save his son, but he does not. Jesus has to be the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, to undo the original sin that we talked about with Adam and Eve. It's to wipe the slate clean. Now, obviously, there will be many references in the Old Testament to what happens in the New Testament. But I hope that by hearing these few examples that we've given, that you'll be alert to them from a storytelling point of view and notice their potency and power. Next time, we'll start looking at how the types of Christ differ once the story of Christ itself has been made plain.